But first of all, we're going to have to look to the Lord in prayer. Now, our Father, what we want to do this morning is to pause and ask that your spirit be poured out on each and every one that is struggling in various ways. This week, the medical is heartfelt. So as was mentioned earlier, we pray for your hand upon Kobe. We're praying for your healing, your spirit to be working within and through his body, to minister to the extended family, guide and direct all medical personnel, and give wisdom, Father, in the decisions being made. We're praying for the Dick Toth funeral coming up, and upon all that's involved there, that you administer to the hurting and extended family point of need. We think of those that have our facing surgeries. Give them wisdom, Father, and a settled peace in their hearts. And guide the surgeons, minister to them and through them at their point of need, so that they are being directed truly by you. Now there are others, Father, that are coming here and they're facing financial challenges. And they're wondering about how the next paycheck can be stretched out to meet needs. Still others are struggling with relationships. And they're wrestling, Father, with where do I go from here in light of what I've experienced so far. Guide and direct them. This is not a congregation made up of a singular individual, but we are people across a spectrum. There are going to be people that come here today and they are worship bystanders, watching, observing, taking in what others who claim to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are doing and how they're singing, how they're processing. They're watching and observing at this point they've yet to come to know you. We're praying that your word will penetrate those hearts. There are going to be others at the opposite end of this full spectrum that their hearts are overflowing with praise because of what Jesus Christ did on that cross. Overwhelm them, Father, with a sense of your presence. And may they grow in grace. And the reality is that there's a host of people in all these services There are various points of the spectrum on one side and the other. We can't assume one size fits all. So, Father, give us wisdom as we take your word and swing the pendulum that we be able to touch hearts, that your word will change lives. So, Father, in these minutes that you give us to be together, it's our prayer once again that you would warm these hearts that you would engage these minds, and that you would shape these wills. We've come here, Father, again to see Jesus and him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Fort Hancock is found at the farthest tip of Sandy Hook. Jets right out into the Atlantic on the New Jersey coastline. During World War II, it was a military training center. 
there was a civilian area there where people were hungry to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to all the military personnel in that region. Well, there was a particular young man that wanted to share the gospel, but being a civilian, he was not allowed to go there on the camp. Burdened, though, to see thousands come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, and with a creative mind, he asked a firm that specialized in novelties to make several thousand mirrors about three inches in diameter. And on the back of each mirror, he had printed these words. John 3.16. And then beneath these words, he had this directive. Quote, if you want to see who it is that God loves, look on the other side. Unquote. Now, for those who come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, one of the earliest verses is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting eternal life. But you're in a life group this week, and that verse has meant so much to you. But somebody then looks up, captures your attention, and says, but how do I reconcile that with what John wrote in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, that Gary spoke of this past Sunday, where it begins, do not love the world. On one hand, we've got a God who so loved the world. And on the other hand, we've got a God who says, do not love the world. And how do you go about reconciling that tension when God used the same author to pen both those verses? Well, no. You're already wrestling with these thoughts. And John wants you to. So what I want to do now is to bring out what I'll call three tension points that are found in these verses that are going to have a direct bearing upon the way in which you impact the lives of those around you. At the same time, the way in which the Holy Spirit wants to impact that soul found within you. Now the first tension point comes out of verse 15 that regarding our relationship to the world, I want you to first note the command given by God. It says, do not love the world. And you're still wrestling with that question, but at the same time, we're told God so loved the world, so how do I reconcile this supposed tension, this supposed conflict? Now, notice that this is the first of ten commands found in John's epistle. Let's go right after it. Do not love the world. The word world here is the Greek word cosmos. Cosmos. 
where it says in John's gospel, written primarily for unbelievers, that God so loved the world. Notice that the love that God had for the world at that point was a love which is self-sacrificial. That he gave his only begotten son. On the other hand, the command that God gives via John, do not love the world, is because our natural tendency is not providing a love which is self-sacrificial, but to be marked by a love which is self-serving. Jesus asks, what can I give? The person entangled in the world asks, but what can I get? And distorts the deep richness of love. When God looks upon the individuals of the world, the key word is to transform. He gives his son to die for our sins to transform our life. But if we become so value entangled with the cosmos, the word is not transform, the word is conform. Where instead of asking, what can I give? The question is, what can I get? And instead of sharing the good news for the sake of transforming lives, I'm entangled with the whole idea of this individual, and the conforming of life to the values of this world. And so what then are we talking about at this point when we are wrestling with this whole aspect, you see, of this matter of the cosmos, this matter of the world? When John writes... He writes with regard to the world that it usually refers in his writings to this fallen moral realm that's producing a rebellion, an ongoing rebellion against God. Which means then there is a rebellious love to be contrasted with a redemptive love. A rebellious love which is self seeking rather than God honoring and asking, what can I get out of this relationship? Rather than a self-giving, self-sacrificial love, which asks, but what can I give to this world? And Jesus enters as king into Bethlehem. He's a king who is thinking in terms of self-sacrifice but he runs counter to another king named Herod, whose interest is self-serving. Jesus gives of life. Herod is marked by the taking of life. And now what we find is that there is this sense of the clash here. Jesus loves others. Herod loves self. Jesus gives self for others. Herod wants to take the others for the sake of self. Now John, who had to process all of that at this point, 
is then saying to you and to me, do not love the world. That's casting the net wide. But then he adds, or the things in the world, and that's casting the net deep. Those that understand something about the past will tell us the story of an emperor by the name of Charlemagne. And he gave instructions that when he died, he should be buried, seated in the royal posture of a ruling monarch on a throne. And then he directed that the gospel should be laid on his knees, his sword beside him, his crown on his head, the royal mantle on his shoulders. His body remained for 180 years. But Dr. John Massey tells us that about 1000 A.D., the tomb was opened, and they found the skeleton of Charlemagne. The skull was still wearing the crown. The bony finger of the skeleton was pointing to this particular verse, Matthew 16, 26. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world, cosmos, and lose his own soul? Now begin to ask yourself, and what am I attempting at this point in my work experience, even my religious experience, my family experience, my singleness, whatever the case might be, where am I seeking to profit? Is my value system so influenced by cosmos rather than Christ that I've got a warped view of love and ask, what can I get? rather than a biblical view of love, and ask, but what can I give? Am I subtly being conformed, or through the work of the Holy Spirit, am I being continuously transformed? What interests us about this statement, do not love the world, do not love the cosmos? It's not saying do not love the people in this world. Jesus came to die for sinners. Jesus came into this world as a person. What he is talking about here, then, is the worldview, the fallen moral realm. It produces a life of rebellion against God. And what you and I now do is we begin to contrast the lordship of Christ versus the lordship of cosmos over your soul and mine. And ask, but which influences the way in which I relate this afternoon to my family members? Which influences the way in which I handle my singleness? Which influences the way in which I conduct my relationships at work and elsewhere? And handle my private life as well as my public life? Is there a magnetism drawn to Christ or a magnetism drawn toward cosmos? Do not love the world or the things in the world. So he casts the net wide. But furthermore, what he does is he casts the net deep. 
the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world. And so now what we've got to ask ourselves, but which course am I following? Have I taken a detour? Am I in a different place than I used to be? And am I in a different place than where I ought to be? And where is my soul? Where's my heart? And where are my values now in relationship to what I know the Bible's teaching I should be? Am I cosmos driven or Christ driven? Now, these are critical questions that cut into the core of the soul. We've got to ask ourselves where am I at? But then, as he continues to work this verse, it's a command, which tells us then that this command means it doesn't come natural. If John had not offered this command, because our natural tendency would be not to love the world. But he knows our natural tendency is to love the world. And so he's going to counter, for you and for me, our natural tendencies towards cosmos. And so regarding our relationship to this cosmos, in contrast to Christ who entered into this world to die for our sins, you note the command and you realize then, okay, he's issuing this command because by nature this does not come natural. There is a natural affinity. There is a natural magnetism where I will distort love and value that which God And then he adds this, still found in verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the third time he uses that word, in this verse alone, the love of the Father is not in him. Which tells me and tells you at this point is that the love of the Father and love for this world are mutually Exclusive. Incompatible. Case in point. When you read the epistles, ponder the way the season of life in which the various writers found themselves. Now, in this particular case, the Apostle John is up in years. Most of his life has already passed him by. So what I tend to do is to compare it to the Apostle Paul. In which epistles did he write when most of life had also passed him by? And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, listen to this. Paul wrote these words. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Do you have a Demas in your life? Somewhere along the way, did someone desert you? Or desert the Lord? Maybe you thought you had a spiritual affinity with that person. Maybe there is a sense of fellowship connectedness with that person. Maybe a family member. Maybe somebody you grew up with. 
then all of a sudden the Demas effect kicks in. And you're overwhelmed with that sense of a vacuum in your soul. She's no longer here. He's no longer here. What happened? As we're going to note next week, the Apostle John in verse 19 will go on to say, they went out from us, but they were not of us. The Demas effect. Now, you kick it back then, what the Apostle John is saying at this point, and so we see how he's casting the net deep, and he's casting the net wide. And he wants you and he wants me to think seriously about our relationship to Christ and the cosmos. Because as John records Jesus stating in that upper room, we are in essence to be in the world, but not of the world. So how do you handle that tension? Now, there's a second tension point here. It's found in verse 16. And secondly, regarding our relationship to the world, once you've established the command God's given to us, note second of all the reasons provided by God. Verse 16. So now you tie together the command given by God to the reasons for that command provided by God. And in verse 16, three significant reasons begin to emerge. Notice how all-encompassing he is. He says, for all, not some, for all that is in the world. And then he gives you the first of the three reasons. The desires, number one, of the flesh. Now, what are the desires of the flesh? These are your natural yet fallen impulses your natural yet fallen motivations. If you're single, ponder your singleness in relation to your natural inclinations. If you're trying to parent or grandparent effectively, begin to ponder the natural tendencies not only in that individual, but also genetically through the generations of our extended family, what are they naturally drawn toward in matters of desires, motivations, passions? Because cosmos deals with the order of things, but the challenge is, is that so much of this world is out of order. And so when we talk about the world order, we have to talk about the fact that this world is out of order. What are the controlling influences here? And somebody might say, but I'm just doing what comes natural. And you will say, natural, yes, fallen as well. Natural fallenness. And so now each of us, personally, but also parentally, singly, no matter where our situation is, begin to monitor and ask the tough questions Where are these desires, and where do these desires lead? Because desires shape destinies, don't they? Last year, we came to the area of Pompeii, and that's where Mount Vesuvius, of course, spilled forth its volcanic ash, and people died. And I was thinking about that on the way back, 
and a story that was told by Clovis Chappell, who wrote, when Pompeii was being excavated archaeologically, there was found a body that had been embalmed by the ashes of Mount Vesuvius. It was that of a woman. Her feet were turned toward the city gate, but her face was turned backward towards something that lay just beyond her outstretched hands. The prize for which those frozen fingers were reaching was a bag of pearls. Maybe she herself had dropped them as she was fleeing for her life. Maybe she had found them where they had been dropped by another. But, be that as it may, though death was hot at her heels and life was beckoning to her beyond the city gates, she couldn't shake off her desire. She had turned to pick them up with death as her reward. But it was not the eruption of Vesuvius that made her love pearls more than life. It was her desires more than anything else. So now what you and I do is we ask, and what is the direction of my desires? Because my desires have a directional aspect to them. They lead us in a certain direction, you see. And desires shape destinies. So the wise person and the wise parent, the wise individual is continuously connecting desire to destiny, saying, if I pursue that, it will lead to that. And so you start with the desires of the flesh, number one. And then second of all, there's the desires of the eyes. The second reason, you see it on the screen. Now, sometime when you are studying Genesis, look for the ways in which the word I or eyes used. For example, in Genesis chapter 3, And in verse 5, the evil one is tempting Eve. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. What's he doing? He is subtly, wisely, and effectively connecting the verbal and the visual. Creating a sense of an alternative cosmos approach to life separating her from the Lord of all. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, second time usage, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then third usage, the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Previously, they were so God-conscious, they were not self-conscious. Subsequently, they were so self-conscious They were threatened by the whole idea of being God-conscious and wanted separation from 
the one who created this world, you see. Now, we live in a culture that wants separation from. What we've got to do is to manage this tension wisely. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. So now you ask yourself, when I am free to look, where do my eyes take me? In Genesis chapter 13, you and I are told that when Abram and Lot were in a dispute, Lot lifted his eyes and saw the fields that he wanted. His eyes revealed his desires. But the direction of his desires led him towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Subsequently, God told Abram to lift up his eyes. And there what we find is the epicenter of the Middle East, Palestine. And God is making an eternal promise to Abram at that point. And there was a visual, visible conflict of eyesight that lacked foresight in the heart of Lot, but not Abram, because he knew that the promise was eternal. So now what you and I do is we say to ourselves, it's not enough to just simply say, I'm looking. But what is the desire behind the look? And now I connect the points, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes And ask myself, and where does that take me? Because desires do shape destinies. And begin to let that influence the way you handle parenting, singleness. If you're an employer or an employee, work colleagues, how does all this connect to the way in which we relate to one another and this whole matter of love? Because then there's this third reason. Not only the desires of the flesh, number one, and the desires of the eyes, number two, but thirdly, the third reason, the pride of life, number three, which was the reason why the evil one, Satan, fell, right? Here's the rub. Pride has a lot to do with our proximity to the cross of Jesus Christ. The further we remove ourselves from that cross, the greater the propensity for pride. The closer we position ourselves to that cross, the greater the inclination of humility. F.B. Meyer wrote, I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves, one above another, and the taller we grow, the easier we could reach them. But now I find that God's gifts are on shelves, one beneath another, and the lower we stoop, the more we get. Is there the stoop of grace that marks the humility of your life? It's a question I have to keep asking myself and reminding myself 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, which, by the way, is what the evil one attempted to do. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, as a result of that, God has highly exalted him. This is not self-exaltation. That is above every name. God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And so now what you and I do is we keep pondering this, and we say, I've just spotted three significant reasons in here to be able to connect the command that God gave me because it's so unnatural. My natural tendency is to love the cosmos rather than the Christ. But if I'm going to love the Christ who died for the cosmos, then I've got to understand the reasons that are here, the desires of the flesh, number one, the desires of the eyes, number two, the desires of pride of life, number three. And then notice what he does next. This is powerful. He hyphenates. He creates the dash in your verse. And then adds, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. Mutually incompatible. But what's interesting is that word from comes from a Greek word, ek, that is used likewise in John's gospel, chapter 17, verse 14, onward. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Not from the world, but from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So how do you parent in this culture? You sanctify them in the truth. God's word is truth. And you accept the fact that they're in the world, but they're not to be of the world, and vice versa. So if we're going to impact this world, we accept the fact that God has positioned us in this world. After all, he positioned Jesus Christ in this world. He entered into Bethlehem to die on Calvary. He was in the world, but he is not of the world, which was the struggle that Pilate faced we was wrestling with where this kingship truly comes from, you see. Now, once you've worked through that, and you're asking yourself practically now, okay, family-wise, work-wise, relationship-wise, I'm drawing my love from the way in which God wants me to love, I'm going to counter my natural inclinations and embrace his commands. This is not self-gaining. It is self-giving. This is not mocked by conform. It is mocked by transform. I grasp now the reason for the command. 
Furthermore, I begin to embrace the three reasons for this. And I'm doing a checklist not only for myself, but I'm equipping my family and my co-workers and so on subtly or informally, relationally over a cup of coffee in a, in a, in a cafe or a coffee place, wherever. And you're carrying on conversations about how desires lead to destinies. When somebody's wondering, and how did I get here anyways? And you pull it all together. Because here's your third tension point. You start with the command given by God in 15. You work through the reasons provided by God in verse 16. You end with the future described by God in verse 17. And in essence, there's two destinies. Notice, first of all, the temporal one. And the world, the cosmos, interestingly enough, we are told, is passing away. The very same word we found back in verse 8. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away. Ships in the night. The true light is already shining. Jesus Christ. We are in the world, but not of the world. This cosmos is passing away. And then he adds this incredible statement with its desires. The very same word used back in verse 16. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride of life, and so on. All of this, then, is passing away. It's a present tense thing. You can't keep it. Which is a reminder to you and a reminder to me, then. Don't try to make what is temporal eternal. Don't try to make what is passing away permanent. You're going to feel let down. That's nothing more than wasted love. But here's your contrast. But. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Here's the other destiny. One is temporal, the other is eternal. The cosmos is temporal. Salvation is eternal. Whoever does the will of God, it does not read, will abide forever, does it? It says, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Right now, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've got eternal life. It's not still to come. It's now in your soul. You've got the eternal working itself out in the temporal. Isn't that amazing? You're going to die physically, but you're going to live eternally if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. You are in the world, but not of the world. So now you've worked that out, and you're asking, and how does that equip me? Single, married, rich, poor, 
highly educated or less so. Many children, no children. Wherever you're at in life, you embrace the command God's given us. You work through the checklist of the reasons God's provided for us. You end with the future and God's described for us. And ask yourself now, am I investing in the temporal or am I investing in the eternal? And when you do that, you look at yourself in the mirror and you're able to say, but God so loved me that he gave his only begotten son eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's stand together. Thank you, Father. If you want to see who it is that God loves, Look on the other side. So we've got to ask ourselves, Lordship, is it the Lordship of Cosmos or the Lordship of Christ? And now we realize there's a tension, Christ, Christian, and Cosmos. And how does this matter of love fit into all of it? And what is my view my worldview. So, Father, help us now to take these three verses, relate them practically to the way in which we, we are involved verbally, visually, relationally, to make a difference in the lives of those that come in our path. We praise you for eternal life in Jesus. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.